0: March 5th, 2009, in Fairfax, Virginia. It is a day before our new son's 16th birthday, and my husband, Kent, and I are about to meet him for the first time. We stand at a precipice, both familiar and foreign. Familiar, because we have already adopted three children. Uh, Familiar, because one of the three children we have already adopted was also a teenager when we met her. And we know, or we think we know, what to expect. Foreign, because as committed pro-life Christians, we know this. Each gift is a life. I'm sorry, each life is a gift. Each life is a mystery. Each life reflects God's image. Each life holds treasures indescribable. And some of those treasures may take the place as holes in your walls. The current living situation of the son we have not yet met is what polite company refers to as a therapeutic group home located about an hour from our own home. After Kent returns home from work, we put Mary, age three, and Knox, age six, in their car seats, and we head off. We feel as though we are walking off a cliff. This is the most important endeavor, the most sacred risk, and the clearest picture of God's covenant that I know. We enter a house that looks like any other except all of the people inside are strangers to each other. The neat rows of children's shoes that wrap around the outside porch ranging from very small to very large reveal that this home is at full capacity. We are warmly welcomed to enter by one of the live-in social workers and we are directed to sit in a formal living room. ...heavily reeking of white vinegar and pine room freshener. None of the bedrooms have doors. Alarms ring upstairs as children with monitors on their ankles... ...set off buzzers when they move from place to place... ...creating an anxious choir, exposing movement with no escape in sight... No one is allowed outside without supervision. And everyone is supervised all the time. Children must seek permission to use the toilet. The rule charts on the kitchen walls are endless and daunting. Each child has his own neatly typed list. But they all begin like this. Rise at 5.30, make bed, take medicine. The rule charts pour over the kitchen walls and into the hallway, creating a gothic paisley pattern, the yellow wallpaper style that forebodes unending potential failure or madness, just like the heroine of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's turn-of-the-century novella, of this title. In Charlotte Perkins Gilman's 6,000 word feminist classic The Yellow Wallpaper the narrator slowly descends into madness attributing the wallpaper as the source of her mental demise. The wallpaper's paisley yellow detail very much like the 10 point rule charts in this group home covers every base. Rule charts in this group home record as a goal what the state envisions to be the best course of actions for the child. Each goal is listed on the chart before the word breakfast. And the options are these. Reunification with birth family, adoption or permanent foster care. Goals depend on either people who have already shown themselves to be undependable or strangers whose prospects are suspicious at best. Reunification with birth parents and adoption are such high-risk endeavors. So few teenagers in foster care realize either end point. And so it feels hopeless to hope, not knowing if the next day will be a new nightmare or a rerun of an old nightmare. I look at the charts, and I can't wrap my mind around how they can be successfully accomplished. It seems to me truly that no human being could possibly fulfill the expectations on these rule charts. It seems that creativity of any kind is the great enemy of self-control. But these children have become robots. They take medicine to wake up, to focus on school, to remain calm in the interminable bus ride home and to go to sleep. They take medicine to forget the past, to remember the math lesson and to separate themselves from more shattered hope. They take medicine so that they can have names to unlearn, memories to flush and a future that slips between fingers. I want to like this house and the foster parents in it. I want to see them in me and me in them. But this is no home. This is a prison. And this is one of the finest government-run therapeutic foster homes in one of the wealthiest counties in the United States. Our social worker, who, the social worker who runs the house, repeats the need for us to maintain strict rules and regular medication our son Knox has brought a present for Michael, an olive green plastic Triceratops with a foot chewed off, thanks to our golden retriever, Sally. And it occurs to me, as I look at the mauled plastic dinosaur, that there are no visible toys in this home filled with children. There's not one errant Lego piece or escaped matchbox car. Not one. One. And let me say right off, I know that rules are important. The first question that every foster child able to speak asked me upon entering our house was this. What are the rules? I know that sin resides in the hearts of men. I know that we are born sinners. I do not look at, at, at orphans and widows and, and people who are displaced by homelessness as sheer victims. We are all, savior, we are all sinners in need of a savior. We need, we need help on both fronts. I know that, that we are all born in iniquity, as Psalm 51 says, and that in sin did my mother conceive me. And I know that sin even resides in our patterns of self, um, I, I, I don't know, um, our, our patterns that we need to create just to survive, self-survival. But this house really disturbs me. On the walls are tapestry samplers that display pastel and cursive quilting that says, Home Sweet Home. And in the bedrooms are wards of the state medicated to the hilt needing permission to use the bathroom. I know that I can be deluded. I know that many foster moms in pride think I can do better than this. My love is better than this. I can save this child. But that's not where I'm going. I know I can't save anyone. I know that Jesus alone saves. But I also know that we have to show up. And so here we are, and we have shown up. And now that we have shown up, I can tell you that this house really was giving me the creeps. Numbers go through my head when I'm threatened. And now I'm thinking about the 7,000 teenagers who age out of foster care and who often end up in prison or homeless or dead. I know that this house is better than prison or homeless or dead. But still, I ponder the 105,000 children in foster care nationwide in the U.S. waiting for nightmares to end. And I sit in this house in my class and my racial privilege... And I know what it means to pray for the whole lost world of mankind, myself being the chief of sinners, pleading with God to undo me so that I can do good to everyone and so that I can honor and respect all. Mrs. Jones brings Michael to us and I behold one of the most beautiful children I have ever seen. He's all legs and pimples, and he towers over me, long afro, mild brown eyes, and a caramel candy complexion. And he is scared. He looks right past me and right past Kent, and he fixes his gaze on Knox and Mary. He gets down on the floor with them at eye level. The world stands still. And then suddenly his face lights up with joy. Mary gives him a hug like she's known him her whole life. And Knox gives him the mauled army green dinosaur. And this looks like a family reunion. Except that we are all still strangers. Michael jumps up and begs the the supervisor to let him please, please, please return to his room to get his family picture He's talking a mile a minute and his whole body is gyrating in place. He just must have this family picture. He must have it to show to this boy here, this Knox boy. This Knox boy must see his family, his brothers. He pleads. He wheels around. He ticks. He won't stop. She relents. And moments later, Michael returns with something cupped protectively in his hands a Polaroid picture lined with tears and sweaty hands, the corners curling in. It is the only remnant of proof that Michael survived another life in another world with unfinished business in that past world. And that unfinished business dogs him. And there were good things too in that world and they call him by name. And they are trapped with him in the picture. And suddenly I see it. He's a boy stuck. He can't get back to this Polaroid world. And without the Polaroid world, he can't take up residence in this one. And every child I have ever known who spent time in foster care has a picture like this. With a trap door almost impossible to unhinge. Michael flashes the picture before my eyes and Ken's eyes briefly, and then he settles back down on the floor with the children, cupping his hands protectively around his treasure. With his Polaroid picture in his hands, he's no longer nervous. He no longer gyrates. He breathes deeply, heavily, Knox and Mary know that this is a sacred moment, and they wait for Michael to reveal the treasure in his cupped hands. They are expecting him to reveal either a just captured toad, that would be what Knox would have wanted, or a little bit of chocolate. And when no toad or chocolate appears, they seem to have an uncanny sense not to appear disappointed. Of course, they they don't know how to interpret the the old picture of three children, one with a bushy afro, the other with a missing front tooth, and the smallest one with a faraway look, just like the one Knox always seems to have on his face when the camera flashes. The faraway look boy is wearing a Thomas the Tank Engine T-shirt and holding a beige stuffed bear with a red tartan bow. The boy in the picture looks strikingly familiar. In fact, he looks just like both of the boys in the room. My sons. One whom I have known for six years and the other whom I have just met. And from that moment on, it was almost like I had twin boys separated by a decade. Michael says, look Knox, this is a picture of my brother Aaron. And Knox says, no, that looks like me, but I don't have a Thomas the Tank Engine t-shirt. That looks like me. I know that's me. No, this is a picture of my brother, other brother, not you, brother. Your brother is me. I am your brother. You are my brother. And this is Is me. The mystery of the covenant of family unfolds in places like this. Therapeutic group homes where strangers live together with majesty and miracle on display. And in the background, the dim thudding of alarm bells that demarcate a child unfairly deemed juvenile delinquent getting permission to use the toilet in all of my years of parenting and with all of the children that I have held, comforted, fed, tucked in, listened to, prayed for, nothing, nothing had prepared me for this moment. And for reasons that I cannot explain and that no parenting book has ever explained, my identity as a mom comes into full view when faced with a frightened, angry, misunderstood teenager. I love them instantly. No parenting book, no conversation with experienced parents, and no life experience prepared me for what it means to love at first sight my newly met son, a courageous boy, gangly and awkward, who stands a foot taller than I do. Teenagers placed in foster care feel broken and unwanted, and they have told me that they feel almost like lepers. They need the advocate, Jesus himself. Often they feel marked and shamed, outsiders, rejects. Even the rules of the system work against them. They need grace. They need contagious grace. We all need grace. One year later, we had the privilege to adopt Michael. And something absolutely earth shattering happened when we stood before the judge. When you stand before a judge and you adopt a teenager, the teenager actually has to speak and has to consent to an adoption. And when the judge asked Michael whether he wanted to join the Butterfield family, Michael said, I belong here. I belong. Those were such powerful words. And I'll tell you, I was feeling so good about myself that day. I was just feeling so, uh, I don't know, proud and, and relieved. And I just felt like we really, you know, we did something great and later that day, I was speaking at an adoption rally. And before I took the podium, to t- you know, just to share with people the importance of adopting teenagers, our social worker, Kelly, came up to us. And she said, Rosaria, I have terrible news. Jessica is dead. She was found in a homeless shelter. And we think it was suicide. Jessica was the girl we didn't adopt. Now, I know that sounds horrible, but it's true. And I, I sat down, and I opened my Bible, and I wrote in the corner of my Bible, by Hebrews thirteen one through 3, I wrote her name. I wrote her first name, and her middle name, and her last name. And that day that I was speaking at this adoption rally, they had asked me to talk about the risks of adopting teenagers you know because, because you know teenagers are risky, apparently. see, I just really love teenagers, but I, I know they 've got a big rap sheet and and, and they 're big and they don 't sh- take showers nearly as often as they ought to and um, and they, they, you know when they jump on the couch, they could break it from the bottom down and, and, and who knows what else they 're involved in but All of a sudden, all I could think about... All I could think about... was a different kind of risk. And it's really all I've been able to think about ever since. And it's the risk of not. It's the risk of not showing up. It's the risk of being afraid of people... because they have a bad reputation. It's the risk that makes us feel entitled to say no before we even consider saying yes. And so, what I came to learn and what I want to talk about in the following few minutes that I have with you is the importance of saying yes, even when it's scary. Now, Teenagers in foster homes are not people you would ever meet unless you sought them out. And it really strikes me with Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. In part because of our class distinctions and because of the busyness of our lives, maybe even in part because of how busy our churches can keep us. I know churches that keep people busy every single night with some program or another. And maybe because of all of this, there's no time, there's no time To seek a stranger. And yet, hospitality fundamentally involves seeking out strangers. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ seeks his people. And we are called to look out for people. And it absolutely always means that you don't get to do something else. You know, there are 24 hours in a day. One of the, the two ways that, that Kent and I have found it very easy to seek out strangers is to become home-studied for either foster care or adoption. Or in the U.S. we have something called safe family, which is whole family care. And what all the, um, all the certification process really allows you to do is to have private information about people so that you can pray for them. And hopefully step into their lives in some way. Now, um, one of the questions that we often ask is, is it safe? And uh, another question might be for Christians, and especially Christians in a post-Christian world, is it safe to not do this? Because if we don't do this, you know someone will. Is it safe for Christians to not? Now, A few years ago, we had a pretty amazing experience, Kent and I, and our children. Uh, A friend of mine from church, we have a very small church, my husband is the pastor of this very small church, Uh, but a friend of mine had been fasting for three days because she just felt that, you know, as another homeschool mom, she had just been living, you know, selfishly or just, life had been too safe. And so she had been fasting for three days. And on the third day, which was the Lord's Day, while we were finishing up, we teach the children's program. We were finishing up teaching the children's program. And a woman walked through the door of our church with a little boy. And it was obvious that they had been living in the car. And so my friend Michelle turned to me and with those delirious eyes that people have when they've been fasting three days, she looked at me and she said, "Rosaria, the gospel comes with a house key. We need to take these people in." And I said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Wait, wait a minute. I think you need to break this fast. Uh, wait, wait a second. We—they're strangers. We don't know who they are. What are we doing?" And she looked at me and she said, "Call Carrie." And I said, "Oh yes." Carrie Carrie is a coordinator of something called Safe Family, which organize, which helps to uh, make sure that children don't end up in foster care just because their parents are poor. Because you know what? Poverty is not a sin. And so I called up Carrie, and I said, okay, Carrie, this is what's going on. What do you think we should do? And she said, Rosaria, you know, the gospel comes with a house key. I think you, I think you and Michelle have it down. I think you should just do it. If you need some help with me, that's fine. But... I think you know what to do. And so we sat down. Her name was Emerald. We sat down with Emerald and little Sammy. And we made a plan. And we, we, uh, we found Kent and Brennan and got the whole families together because this is not the first time that our two families have done this. And so basically what happened is that two Christian families committed themselves to take care of one family Displaced by homelessness. And it was a mom and a dad and a little boy. And so the mom and the little boy were really happy to get into a home. And because his school was, was close to uh, Michelle's house, this was a working family. Dad was working, mom was working, and the little boy was, was going to school. And they were living in a van, and it, it was not going well, obviously. Mom and son were happy to, to move in, but dad didn't, didn't want to. He didn't trust us. And so my husband went out and tried to find him. And he did. He found him. And he brought him home. And it had been a long time that anybody walked to the door of our house with the clothes on his back. And he was gracious and kind and we showed him the guest room and we found some pajamas and I washed his clothes, we gave him a toothbrush and we immediately contacted our neighbors for help with getting both families to work on time. There was a lot to do. And so we spent three days of what felt very much like crisis management um, just organizing our home and, and, and organizing childcare and, 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 and dealing with the, the pain and the agony and the, and the post traumatic stress disorder that comes from living in a car. And on the third day, when we could finally sort of settle down and we were able to have a meal together and we got everybody's work schedule settled out and we're all making dinner together and we're at the table and Kent is sharing the gospel, and then this family starts sharing the gospel back. And we realized that we were living with a Christian family displaced by homelessness. And that was a powerful moment. And so I wrote their names in my Bible in Hebrews 13, one through three, because it had happened. We were living with angels unaware. We had an amazing summer, and it was hard, and we all lacked privacy. We had to share things. Um, we enlisted our neighbors to help with the transportation of, of our friends to work, we did all-summer child care. Um, our neighbors were delighted, and our friends, our brother in Christ, was more than happy to share the gospel with all of our neighbors who were driving him to work. When our church uh, treasurer was able to help them with their finances and help them get some debt paid off and other things. Another family in town from a bigger church that had an extra apartment was willing to rent it without asking for a credit check. Um, there were definitely things that didn't happen that summer. I, I'm just going to tell you, there are things that didn't happen. My daughter missed a couple of swim team practices. It's true. Our water bill went up. It's absolutely true. But when I look back on the great opportunity that it was to host Angels Unaware, I can't believe that the Lord has allowed us these privileges. And one of the things that happens when a stranger walks through the threshold of your house and becomes part of the family of God, is that stranger doesn't exist as a stranger anymore. The gospel imperative is to have no strangers, to have all strangers be part of the family of God. But it's risky. Only I actually think it was more risky for them to walk through the doors of my house than it was for me to open the doors of my house. Now there are other ways to seek the stranger. But it has seemed to me that the two that are, that work, that have integrity, are either you bring the stranger to you or you go live where the stranger lives. I, I don't know how you can have a commuting relationship with the genuine care of people who are who are lost in these ways. And so I would just like to end with, with, with encouraging you to not be afraid. To not be afraid to apply in very bold ways the work that God has laid out for us. And even in this world, where I know that you have, you have, a, a, you are frightened and, and probably, you know, appropriately so for the vote that's going to come in October, you know, there will be no, there's no greater reason than the reality of the potential post Christianity of Northern Ireland. To do mercy work with abandon. Not doing it from, you know, a, a, as a, I don't know, as an act of works righteousness. Not doing it as something that just you and your family does. But, but a church, the reality of your church cares enough for people that, that it sends ambassadors out. And you know what? Those people might never be on the rolls of your church. But if they're in the if they're in the if their name is in the then the Lord's book, who cares? That's fine. And so, my encouragement is to remember, to remember what Jesus has done, to remember the way that our Lord took condemnation, so that we could be free of that, that he took the stripes and he took the beatings so that we could actually be healed. Uh, Jesus took false accusations. He, he heard very hard things. You might hear those from teenagers in foster care or from people that you attempt to help. He took those false accusations so that we could have justification Jesus even took the wrath of God so that we could stand in the robes of righteousness. Jesus took betrayal from friends so that we could belong. I believe that God's covenant is large and capacious and that there are people who need to be not just invited but literally carried over There is no way to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of the Savior without standing very, very close. And so I recommend, even as we're praying about these votes coming up, I recommend that you not fear loving the stranger because you too may have the amazing opportunity to entertain angels and to learn from them. And I know, I know you want to ask this. You want to say, but what about the children? You know, Mary and Knox were so little when this all started. Yes, the children. My children have grown up in this environment. They, they are now 13 and 16 and they're here at this conference. They're, they love the Lord Jesus Christ They know how to witness to their friends and they do. We would put them to bed when they were little and they'd come out with their little blankies and stuffies and fall asleep under the dining room table listening to these conversations with hurting people. And they would hear their parents plead for people to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Jesus. And they have seen some of the most unlikely people come to Christ because Christ specializes in unlikely converts. He did not come for the righteous. There is no gospel for the righteous. And so what about the children, my children? Well, if I ever wanted to pretend that Jesus was some prop that I pull out Sunday morning so that they can tuck their shirts in and look decent for church, forget it, I've ruined it. They've seen the power of the gospel to change people's lives. So what about the children? I think that they're doing just fine. I think that we all could use a good dose of courage in loving the stranger. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you sought us as strangers. And we thank you, Lord, for, the, for the, the promises of the covenant and for the promises of the gospel and for the ways that you have delivered on those promises. God, thank you for the friendships you've given us, for the churches you've given us. Thank you that we belong. Thank you that we are known and we know. And we pray, God, even now, that you would empower, equip us, give us the courage Help us, Lord, to be your ambassadors so that strangers can belong in the family of God by your power and by the great work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.